previously on Flying the Line. The dedication of the man who would become Alpa's second president is tested as the reign of his predecessor closes. Welcome to the Flying the Line podcast, a look into the past of the Airline Pilots Association. Abridged from the book, Flying the Line, by George E. Hopkins. Chapter 16, The Saiyan Style, Part 2. The first challenge facing Saiyan was the 1952 convention. Despite the widespread support among pilots for Banky's removal from office, there was no consensus that Saiyan should replace him. Historically, ALPA had been a captain's organization, and co-pilots were distinctly second-class citizens. Saiyan was never more than a co-pilot, and moving directly into the ALPA presidency without ever having occupied the left seat was detestable to some. Until 1938, co-pilots had the privilege of paying ALPA dues and not much else. After that, they received half a vote but they could not serve as chairman of either local or master executive councils, and there could not be more than one co-pilot on any ALPA standing committee. The discriminatory policy went back to the dawn of commercial aviation, when captains looked upon co-pilots as interlopers out to steal their jobs. By the end of World War II, the co-pilot was obviously not merely an apprentice, but a necessary member of the crew. Indeed, at some airlines, stagnant promotion lists made the career co-pilot a possibility. Recognizing this, ALPA dropped all discrimination against the second pilot in the cockpit, but residual prejudice against Saiyan, because he was only a co-pilot, lingered for a long time and eventually made quite a lot of trouble for him particularly at American Airlines. Clancy Sayan faced his first challenge at the 1952 convention, where Banky formally resigned in return for his pension. Although a majority of delegates believed Sayan deserved a full term in the presidency because of the superb job he had done during the Banky ouster, a substantial minority was determined to replace him. In a foreshadowing of trouble, the opposition to Saiyan centered in the American Airlines pilot group. Their pilots were strong critics of Dave Banky, and many old-timers think that they alone were responsible for driving Banky into a defensive shell. The American Airlines pilots entered the Saiyan era already believing that the amount of control they had within ALPA was less than fair. In 1952, these vague resentments surfaced in the candidacy of Bart Cox, who had had a long and distinguished career in ALPA. Cox had worked on virtually every important technical committee, and in 1947, U.S. President Harry Truman had selected him to serve on the Presidential Commission on Air Safety. Bart Cox was a pilot's pilot, a man who was widely respected. If ALPA had needed a figurehead president, one who would preside symbolically while a corps of dedicated technicians ran ALPA, 
Cox would have been an ideal choice. But 1952 was such a crucial year for Alpa, as it was on the heels of the banky ouster, that the consensus was that a figurehead president would not do. The delegates concluded that whoever headed ALPA after 1952 would have to be a full-time executive who knew as much about administration as he did about flying. Although Bart Cox's candidacy in opposition to Sayan was the centerpiece of the 1952 convention's politics, there were far more important matters afoot. The most important among them was formally finishing the reorganization of ALPA's governance, which was begun by the Special Investigating Committee during the Banky ouster. The executive board had mandated the investigating committee to study ways of democratizing ALPA's structure. In the past, Banky tended to rely on a few chosen insiders at each airline. This was hardly a conspiracy on his part, for the truth was that the average airline pilot then wasn't overly interested in the day-to-day running of ALPA. Banky tended to do things undemocratically because that was the way most pilots wanted them done. So long as there was no fuss, there would be no bother about whether things were done dictatorially. The investigating committee probed these questions before recommending a series of changes designed to allow more direct participation in ALPA's governance by rank-and-file members. Nevertheless, Sayan felt obligated to ruthlessly democratize ALPA's structure, even though it would require years of work to bring this idea to fruition. At the 1952 convention, Sayan told the delegates that a complete revision of the ALPA Constitution and bylaws would require many months of careful study. The goal of this reform, he insisted, was positive control by the membership. The most pressing task confronting Sayan was contract negotiations, and not just on current equipment. It was obvious that jet equipment was coming. Unless ALPA did a lot of advanced legwork, the professional airline pilot would enter the jet age at a grave bargaining disadvantage. Sayan was instrumental in the creation of what would ultimately be ALPA's single most important tool for coping with jets, the Jet Pay Study Committee. The necessity for pilot involvement in the development of jet design criteria and operating standards was already apparent by 1953. Sayan promoted the activities of ALPA pilot committees and staff engineers who met with government representatives to present the pilot's viewpoint before certification of the first jets for U.S. commercial operation. By 1955, the emphasis of ALPA's concern had switched from operations to the impact of the jet transition on pilot pay and working conditions. A resolution to form an official committee to study the jet pay question was recommended by the executive committee meeting in January 1956 and approved by the board of directors in February. By March, the Turboprop and Jet Study Committee had been formed and had begun preparing a report that became the most important issue of the 1956 convention. 
The committee prepared a 124-page report that each of the 247 delegates received when they arrived in Chicago for the November 5th through 12th meeting. They employed a respected consultant, the economist Herbert Unterberger, for advice in its report on wage theory, collective bargaining, and the relative economic status of the airline pilot of the future. Unterberger attended the convention, and two full days were taken up considering the committee's report, with Unterberger himself answering questions at length. Numerous mathematical rationales for increasing pilot compensation were based on the concept of increased responsibility. Unterberger pointed out that salaries in American industry are directly related to unionization and the strength of the bargaining agent. By 1956, a considerable number of airline pilots felt they had fallen badly behind, in a relative sense. But Unterberger also made clear to the delegates that wage increases had to be gradual and steady, not all at once, even for jets. Following his advice, the committee recommended abandoning the ultimatum system of negotiating and gearing the new system to existing reciprocating engine equipment. This did not mean that pilots would abandon the strike threat. The American Airlines pilots were openly hostile to the report because it did not provide a big enough initial raise or enough time off. They argued that they were 85% in favor of throwing down the gauntlet to management. The 1956 convention approved the complex formula for negotiating jet contracts. The delegates knew it would be difficult and time-consuming to return to their local councils to attempt a full explanation. It would be far better, they thought, to have members of the committee explain the report. Despite the careful work, not everybody was satisfied with the report. The American Airlines group was particularly upset, and in a first hint at the split that was to come in 1963, appointed its own jet study committee. One of Sayan's hallmarks as an administrator was careful follow-up. It was one thing to negotiate a fine contract, but it was another to make sure that management adhered to it on a daily basis. Likewise, it was one thing to form a splendid negotiating tool, like ALPA's Jet Study Committee report, but it was quite another to keep it continually updated. To that end, Sayan oversaw the creation of a permanent successor to it, called the Wages and Working Conditions Policy Committee to conduct further and continuing evaluational study of wages and working conditions. But some of the most enduring work of the Jet Study Committee was in the area of crew complement. What were the crew complement issue's origins, and why did the men who ran ALPA in the 1950s consider it to be crucial? Clancy Sayan would back his Wages and Working Conditions Policy Committee to the hilt on crew complement, even to the extent of nearly getting ALPA thrown out of the American Federation of Labor and handing the American Airlines dissidents 
the weapon that they would ultimately use as an excuse to secede from ALPA. Next time on Flying the Line, Clancy Sayan beats back the challenge of yet another American Airlines pilot in 1956, but it almost ends up being his last victory. Thank you for listening. This has been part two of chapter 16 of Flying the Line by George E. Hopkins. Copyright 1982. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast. To listen and subscribe to more in this series, please check us out online at alpa.org or on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or other podcast platforms. Until next time, this is the Flying the Line podcast, a look into the past of the Airline Pilots Association. Production Copyright Alpha 2020. All rights reserved.